anyway, we're going to be talking about this thing that you just love to do that you can hardly wait to do, and that is this thing called waiting. No, not really. We don't like to wait, do we? Waiting isn't always a fun thing to do. Um, in fact, uh, this, this time of year, the early church fathers decided to have a, a time in the church year called Advent, kind of like how we have Lent that leads up to Good Friday, a preparation time to Good Friday and then Easter. Advent is this time, this, this December-ish time where we look forward to celebrating the coming of the Christ child. It's a preparation phase rather than just kind of going, oh, this Sunday is Christmas kind of thing. We, we take this time to be looking forward to and thanking God for the great blessing that we have in Christ. But the whole idea is we're waiting to look, to, we're waiting to experience that kind of celebration. Now, and I, I'm glad Jill did the, the message that she, that she did because I was thinking also of some of the things that we wait for, um, that we used to wait for, we don't necessarily now. One of the things is this. This kid's is called a post office box. Okay? They used to be like on every corner. Now they're all, they're, you've seen them around. But basically when, what you would do is to communicate with somebody, you would get a piece of paper and a pencil, number two only, and you would actually do this thing with your hand. It's called writing. And you would actually write a letter and then you drop it in one of these. And on average, it would take anywhere from seven, or five to seven days for the letter to get to the person. Now, if you do a letter, it's pretty quick. It's, a, it's two days, depending on where you are. But it, you had to wait for that letter to get there. And then also a response, another, because so it could be two whole weeks before you have a response back from your, your, your letter. Students, another thing that we used to wait for when it just kind of was invented um, was connected to this. Raise your hand if you recognize this. Raise your hand if you have one of these accounts. Do you? Nice. <laughs> Antiques Roadshow. So, um, <laughs> so uh, but, the, but the thing that dro- was amazing about this is, is there was this thing that you, you would actually do that the computer would do is called dial-up. And what you would do is this. And now everyone's going, no, no, not the sound. I'm going to let this play. Ready? Wait for it. Sounded like the plumber for that one. Yeah. But students, we had to wait. And then you would get on, on, on this thing called the internet for like five minutes, and then it would drop you. And then you, if you want to download a document or a picture, it literally would take 10, 15 minutes to download. And you could watch it on your screen. Pixelate all the way. It was, it was horrendous. But we back then thought it was cool. So we have all these kind of things that we wait for in our lives. And you can probably pick out a whole bunch of things that you wait for on a very daily basis. You're waiting for the sermon to get done. You know, things like, just things that you can think of. But what happens when God puts you in the waiting room of life? where we're not just talking about small things, we're talking about more serious things. You know, what happens when tragedy hits or significant, difficult things in your life happen? You know, nothing in life can get us more frustrated, more upset, more stressed out and anxious than having to sit in a waiting room that life has designed for you. And the reason waiting can be so frustrating is that having to wait is something that puts Uh, puts us in a position of helplessness in many ways. When we find ourselves waiting and we kind of get anxious about it, we want to change the situation. We want to move things forward. We want to push forward. 
But what happens when you can't? We feel helpless. Because when you're in the waiting rooms of life, you're forced to surrender. You're forced to kind of let go and go, okay, I'm here. And there's one thing I know about you, because it's true about me too. As we're feeling helpless, we're feeling out of control, and none of us like to feel or be out of control. It drives us crazy to hand over the reins of our schedule to somebody else or some other event. And there's this tension that you want to resolve from what is now to what could or should be happening. And there's a tension there. You know, for many of you, or maybe some of you, that's one of the reasons you're not a Christian, that you haven't given your life to God, is because you don't want to have that sense of surrendering or giving control over to something that you maybe are afraid of or don't understand. We do a lot of waiting in our lives, and Shane actually sent me a list of, he kind of brainstormed, here's a list of some of the waiting things that we wait for. We wait for a child to be born. We wait to see if we pass the test. We wait to grow up, to retire, to die. We wait for inspiration for a job interview. We wait to see if we got the job. We wait to see if she says yes or no. We wait for the contract to come in, for the kids to grow up, for the kids to move out, for the kids to come home, for your soldier to come home, for your spouse to come home, for your prodigal to come home. We wait for sobriety. We wait for the meds to kick in. We wait for the biopsy results. We wait for recovery after a serious illness. All of these events put us in the waiting rooms of life. And when you're here, when you're sitting in these chairs and there's nothing else to do, we get frustrated. But when we're here, there's something that we bring with us when we go into these waiting rooms, and, and it's this thing called patience. Now, patience is just simply a tool that we use to cope with life's weights. You know, it's a, but you know, patience is also the timer that eventually runs out. It's the feeling that you can hold it together even when you know that you can't. Thanksgiving morning, um, I was uh, at Caribou Coffee, again, surprise, uh, and um, I was sitting there, and the place was packed, and a mom came in with a couple of kids, and the littlest one, little two-year-old, cute little girl, and she comes walking in, and she has her big poofy jacket on, and the mom comes over with a muffin, and the mom's holding it, and this little girl saw the muffin, and that, there was nothing, God could not get in, in the way of her in getting this muffin. She started, she's like, oh, and she does the hand thing, and you know, she's trying to take her jacket off, and she's bouncing around, and she's just going crazy, and the mom says, patience, honey, and then she says something that most of your moms have said to you. Well, do you know what that next phrase is? Patience, honey. Good things come to those who, don't you have moms? <laughs> Good things come to those who wait. And I never liked that phrase because I always said, well, if it's good in the future, why can't it be good for me right now, right? I'm impatient. It makes sense to be frustrated. But the truth is the waiting room does more than just test our patience. If we let it fester, if we don't um, figure out how to handle lack of patience or impatience, sometimes it gets to a point where it's not testing our patience, but it's testing our belief. Belief in the person who took your order. Belief that they're going to deliver it. 
Belief in the person who's reviewing your job interview. Belief that the situation's going to work out. Belief that they're going to come through. And sometimes, if you're really honest with yourself, waiting pushes you to test your belief that God can even come through. Because we're forced to wait in moments of life, especially in tragic moments. We begin to wonder if God has the ability to get you through in a difficult time. And this is the worst part. It gets even worse. Sometimes God intentionally puts you in a waiting room for his purpose. And the waiting room that he intentionally puts you in can be tough and can be hard and can test your faith in the waiting room that God has designed for you. You know, there's a story in Jesus' life, and if you want to follow along, we're going to be in John 11 this morning. Um, story in Jesus' life, and, and you know the story really well if you've been in church. Uh, it's a situation where Jesus is um, a, apart from a, a group of his friends, and if you, don't, if you don't read the Bible, you should read the Gospels, because he, Jesus does some amazing things, and you get to know him. Jesus isn't Sometimes we get this picture of him with the big golden halo, you know, on a, on a church door from the 1500s or whatever. Jesus was a, a, a person. He was God and a person. He had friends. He loved deeply. He hurt deeply, as you'll see. So the story goes like this. Um, it's in John 11, and uh, his friend Lazarus was sick. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha, Um, Her brother Lazarus was sick, so the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. Now, what do you do when you get the message that somebody you know, somebody that you really trust and that you really love is super, super sick, like on the verge of death? Don't you change your plans? Don't you do anything you can to get to them and to to try and connect with them and, and help out as best you can? That's, if, if Jesus is God and God's ultimate character is love, that's what you would think he would be doing. The next verses that you see would say, Jesus jumped on a donkey or, you know, I don't know, a bus or something and, and got out to the, the city that his friend was at. But this is weird because look at this. When Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. Now get this. So although Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he stayed away for two days. He stayed away for two days. Imagine Mary and Martha waiting for Jesus. You know, they couldn't be texting him. You know, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? That's what we do. So my daughter always says, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? You know, we, don't, we can't send him an email all they could, the best they can do is just look over the horizon and wait to see. They just kept looking for a friend who didn't come. Now, some of you have been there. You've been waiting for a miracle from Jesus. You're like, Jesus, where are you? And you're, you maybe have just gone through a period. You may be in it right now, or you may be coming up to something that you're going to be going, Jesus, where are you? God, where are you in the situation? I'm tired of waiting in this situation, but it reveals a principle that's very important. Sometimes God allows the waiting to reveal something better in your life. Remember what Jesus said, this isn't going to end in death, this is going to be so my, for, for my glory, this is going to be so that I can show God's glory through who I am. So during the course of the next few days, um, he comes to his disciples, again, he's still separated from Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He comes to his disciples 
And he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. And the disciples, quick as they are, said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he will soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping. I love how John puts his commentary in. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant that Lazarus had died. So Jesus knew his friend had died. We don't know if he just, he just knew it because he's God, or maybe there was another messenger. We, we don't know. But somehow he got the message that Lazarus had passed away. So he takes off, and, and I'm, I'm condensing a, the bigger chapter. This is 44 uh, verses, so I'm condensing it all because so there's a little bit of skip. Um, so when Martha got word, Jesus takes off. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him and said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now, now, and get this, get this statement of faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus could do. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Even in the waiting room, the hard time, the loss, she had utter faith that Jesus could do something. Didn't quite know what that looked like, but she had the strong faith that he could do anything. Now, in the story, there's about 10 verses of this drama that ensues um, because Jesus goes in, into the house before they go to the grave, and, and he's having this conversation, and he's looking around, and back in, G, in, the, in Jesus' day, what they would do is when somebody passed away, they would actually hire people. This was a profession back then. To, they were called professional mourners. They would hire people to come into the area and be mourning loudly, um, because the more, the, the more people that were around your, your deathbed, if you will, or, or the grave, signified the importance of the person. So, so these mourners came in, and they were just, oh, and they were great actors, as you'll see. So when Jesus saw her weeping, saw Mary, Mary weeping, but then saw the other people wailing, a deep anger welled up within him. I don't know if you've ever read that in this story. Jesus was compassionate and loving toward Mary and Martha, who just lost their brother, but he was ticked off at these mourners because he knew their hearts. He knew they were fake. Jesus doesn't like fake. Jesus wants transparent. Jesus loves realness. He didn't, and, he, and so this anger welled up in him. He also knew that just a couple of days later, these people would turn against Lazarus because Lazarus raised from the dead. I hope I didn't give away the story. But Lazarus comes back to life, and these people, these same group of people, strategized to have him killed. So he was angry. Where have you put him? Jesus asked. They told him, Lord, come and see. And then when, when they start off toward the, the tomb, we get this one verse that is the shortest verse in the Bible, but it's probably one of the most powerful, at least top 10 for me, then Jesus wept. That, that, that word wept means just a calm shedding of tears. If you've ever been in a situation, maybe you yourself, where this deep sense of loss happens, and it isn't the wailing kind of thing, it's just this deep cry and shedding of tears over the whole situation. That's what Jesus did. If you don't know Jesus is a loving, compassionate person, this is your verse. The God of the universe weeps when you're in the waiting room of life, when life is tough. 
I love this. Jesus was still angry. So he's carrying these emotions. What do I do with this? I'm so hurt that my brother, my, 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 my friend has died, but I really hate you guys right now. I'm angry. He doesn't hate, but I'm angry at these mourners. So he's carrying these emotions with him. Uh, he arrived at the tomb, a cave, which was a cave with a stone rolled across the entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead for about four days. And the smell is terrible. The King James Version says, he stinketh. (laughs) Love that. And what's interesting, the Jewish people don't do embalming. They had embalming back then, but they didn't do that because they felt that it was an intrusion into the soul of a person. So they never embalmed anybody. That's why when Jesus died, they didn't embalm him. Well, it was, you know, the tight situation and the timing, but they brought 40 pounds of spices to spice the body. So it to honor the body, but basically so it wouldn't smell. So Martha says, Lord, he stinketh. Why four days? Back then, these are all kind of sideline things. They're interesting to me. I don't know if you find them interesting, but tough. Um, So there's four days. So So why four days? Why did Jesus wait four days? Back in the tradition of the day, the Jewish people believed, some, some still today, that when a person died, their spirit hung around the body like an aura, hung around the body for three days because it's confused. It doesn't know if the body is going to, if it's going to enter back into the body or if it's going to go on to heaven. So they, people, Jewish people believed that for three days, the, the, the spirit would hang out in the body after three, or around the body. After three days, that spirit then would go on into eternity. So Jesus intentionally waited four days to communicate to everybody, this guy's dead. He's dead, he stinketh, he's dead. Kind of a neat sideline. That's why the whole four days. And, and then Jesus does just the unthinkable. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone away. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and prayed, and he shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in headcloth. You know, I can't, he probably looked like a penguin coming, you know, because everything's bound. Kind of interesting. Um, head wrapped in a head cloth, Jesus told him, unwrap him and let him go. The waiting, the tension, the, the disconnect between life and death, it was all over. The miracle had happened and the whole region, were, they were just blown away because this story went viral. <laughs> kind of cool to think. But it went viral in the area. Now Listen. Or make it personal. The reason you find yourself in the waiting room right now, if you are in a waiting room of life that's tough, isn't because of random circumstances. It's because God is allowing the wait in your life for a purpose that you may know or that may, you may never know. But here's the great thing about the wait thing. No matter what waiting you're having to endure, it's always for the glory of God and for your benefit. No matter what happens to you as a Christ follower, all things work out to the good of those who believe him. And it gets into the nature of God, the most important aspect of God's nature and his character and the one attribute that enables you to wait patiently because you don't just sit there and you know, do nothing. You do something in the waiting. That's what patiently actually means. The one attribute of God that will help you in that kind of waiting, um, to, to wait on him completely in confidence, is a churchy word 
describes God, it's his sovereignty. His sovereignty is defined as a complete and total independent control over every creature, event, and circumstance at every moment in history. God is not hand-tied. Nothing surprises him. Subject to none, one commentator wrote, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does what he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases, and nothing can stay his hand. Isaiah writes, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, this is what God says, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. This is so pivotal for us who are in the waiting room because we feel like God is gone. But in essence, he's right there in whatever struggle you're, you're dealing with, in whatever, whatever waiting room. That's why there's two chairs on the stage because he's here with you in that waiting. Once you grasp this understanding, waiting for our perfect God to work and act in his perfect time not only enables us to wait patiently, but it enables us to wait confidently. God doesn't ask you to do nothing in waiting rooms. He asks you to watch for his working, watch for his purpose to show itself. And in all things, no matter how simple, tiny frustration or tragic, in all things, trust in his love, even in the waiting room. Let's pray. Let's stand to pray. Father, as we're here in this room or listening on our podcast, God, each of us have um, situations, life situations that are just amazing, joyful, um, some just as we would classify neutral, but some uh, that are also, you know, put us in a waiting room that we just think there's no hope, that there's no end to this waiting. Father God, you know that you, I believe you impress upon my heart just to pray a prayer, God, that many of us, some of us at least know um, it's an old prayer, the serenity prayer. But, Father, as I pray this to close our worship time out or our, our sermon time out, Father, I would just pray that the words would sink into our hearts, maybe for that one person right now who just doesn't know what the next step is, maybe for that one person now who is struggling with um, the loss of someone or going into a holiday season that is always such a depressing time rather than a joyful time. So, Father, I just pray. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, wisdom to know the difference. Father, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking, as Christ did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that, God, you will make all things right, if I surrender to your will. Father, that I may be reasonably happy with my life, but supremely and ultimately happy with you forever in the next. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, 